everyone, and welcome to another episode of Double Shelix and part of our special series, You Do Belong in Science. We're really excited to bring you this continuation of our series in which we'll be speaking to guest Noni Williams about a range of topics around education and science. And stay tuned because at the end of the episode, we're going to introduce John Muncy to talk about allyship and specifically emotional labor. It's going to be really great. Stay tuned for it. And we hope you enjoy it. Um, but first, in a little bit, we'll roll the tape on our episode with Noni Williams. Noni is a mathematics graduate student at University of Nebraska Omaha. I've known her since high school. And one thing I super admire about Noni is that even beginning in freshman year of high school, she has been extremely active in outreach and STEM outreach and professional development outreach to students in sort of the after school activity time space, which I think is a really valuable time where you can not only um, influence students' lives, but add additional extracurricular enrichment. Um, we're really excited to bring with you her conversation, which touches on such important topics as the role of peer mentorship and how scientists can effectively engage outreach with kids and teens, what works and what doesn't. Um, we're just really stoked to have Noni on the podcast. I think you guys are going to love our episode, which I think we should just play like right now. Let's play it. All right. everyone and welcome to another episode of Double Shelix. I'm Kayla and I'm Sally and we're so excited to have my good friend and excellent scholar Noni Williams with us here on the podcast. Noni, welcome! Yay! Hi! Happy to be here. <laughs> we're super excited to have Noni here, especially as part of this You Do Belong in Science podcast series. Um, I've, Like I said, I've known Noni for a long time and throughout our entire friendship she has been very heavily involved in outreach and science outreach, and now she does even poetry outreach to all kinds of communities all at the same time as leading her own excellent professional career as a mathematics graduate student at the University of Nebraska at Omaha. So Noni, we're super excited to hear about you and your experiences, your journey as a mathematician, your career goals, and also your um, experience and advice about how scientists and other STEM professionals can productively communicate STEM to children and other lay audiences. And we're just so excited to have you here. This is going to be awesome. Also super excited. I have a lot to say, so it'll be a lot of fun to go to come <laughs> through this. Oh, great. Well, maybe you can start off by telling us a little bit about your background and what you're doing right now. So I am a mathematics master's student at the University of Nebraska in Omaha, as Sally said. My concentration is in data science. Um, my undergrad was a BA in math, where my arts concentration was in Spanish. Um, and Sally and I were in Spanish together all through high school, and that was a lot of fun as well. Um, although I speak slowly in English and thus slowly in Spanish, and always <laughs> was in awe of how quickly Sally could switch between both of the languages. Um, <laughs> I feel you. <laughs> For part of my undergrad, though, I was uh, a civil engineering major, um, but it didn't feel like a great fit here, and I figured if I wanted to continue with engineering, I was like, well, I'll just do it in grad school, but it turns out math was the place for me. Interesting. What, uh, what made you switch between civil engineering and math? So... Um, one of the reasons why I stayed in Omaha was because of scholarships, and one of them was an engineering scholarship. And I was like, well, I know a little bit about engineering and the different fields available, and civil engineering 
feels like a place where I can have a lot of philanthropic outreach and also delve into the just the math and science of it all because I as much as I like math and science I still do enjoy involving the people part of everything um and so being involved with civil engineering through like engineers without borders really appealed to me um but it just at least at the school that I was involved in with the classes and with the professors it didn't feel like I was like a passion was being fostered more like all right, so you're going to go through all these classes and you can go get a job afterwards, and that's great. And that's, that is great. People do want jobs so that they can support themselves, but I also wanted to feel like I was fostering a passion in math and science, and I just didn't feel like I was getting there. Um, and so I switched to math because a lot of the credits transferred and because I've always loved math. Math lead all through middle school and high school. Math um, represent. Woo. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> And so I was like, well, if these credits transfer um, over to the mathematics department, I won't have to end up spending more time working on my degree. So let's just do that and see where it goes. Awesome. That's awesome. Did you uh, always know that you were interested in math, or were this, there a particular experience? Well, math and science, engineering, this, this related fields. Or uh, did you sort of get to the end of high school and choose a subject? I... Don't know if I did. My interests have changed immensely. When I was younger, my mom got me this field book. She uh, got her bachelor's degree in horticulture, and she was working on her master's at Cornell in weed science and plant pathology. So she got me this field book that I would um, I would use when I went outside, and I would draw different plants and bugs, and then go inside and try to identify them. And so I liked that she encouraged us to explore in that aspect, and because she had four children, and it was easier for us to like go outside and discover our own things instead of like getting in her way in the house, because she um, she has she had a lot of things that she wanted to accomplish as a mother of many children, um, and so. That was fun, uh, getting to go out and do that. And then for a little bit, I was like, I'm going to be a professional backup dancer. Um, I was really into ballet. I liked movement um, just because they're always because of the patterns in dance, I would say is one of the things that I was drawn to. I've always liked patterns. And so being able to you have this almost dictionary of moves that you have as you are learning dances and then you can arrange them in an algorithm um, which you call a dance. And so I think that that appealed to me a lot in that regard and being able to make my body learn how to do that, the muscle memory. Um, but for a little bit, I wanted to be a, um, a marine biologist because I liked animals and I was like, water sounds cool. And then the more that I thought about it, I was like, water does not sound cool. I don't like water. <laughs> <laughs> like dolphins, yes. Water, no. <laughs> No, I uh, I learned how to swim at 21 years old with all of my siblings at a um, at the YMCA during doing a swim lesson. There was all of us in our 20s, and then there was like a family of like an eight and a nine year old. And so, so like family swim lessons in the ultimate sense of the word. <laughs> yes. Yes, literally all this. My mom was like, everyone's here on on uh, over summer break, so I'm just going to send you all because none of you know how to swim, and you're too old for that to be okay. <laughs> oh, good for you. Marine biology was out, and then I was like, well, I like logical arguments. 
what about law school? And then I looked at what you had to do for law school, and I was like, that seems like a lot of school. I don't know if I want to be in school for that long. Little did I know I'd be going back to grad school anyway, so I could have. I feel like, especially for women, and I don't know, I'm not a man, so I can't explain this, but I feel like if you're a young woman between the ages of 8 and 18, and you have something to say and an opinion about something, and you voice that opinion, which both you and I, I feel this happens, there's going to be someone who's like, you just like getting in arguments. You should go to law school. <laughs> it's like, yes, but I win them, which is why, which is the reason that you should be saying I should go into law school. Not be, just because I have an opinion, but because I'm good at forming these yes. opinions should be the reason. <laughs> um, and so that's, I don't, that still kind of sits in the back of my mind, but I'm still like, I don't know if I'd want to go to law school. But like holding on to that idea of logical arguments, I was like, well, I like math and I can use math um, competitively because I like to compete. And so the math competitions all through middle school and then all through high school. Um, but I really liked the hands-on aspect of engineering and like being able to like be in the mix of building things. And so that's why I started leaning more towards that, like the robotics, um, mechanical engineering, and then just like the architecture structures, that aspect of it all. But as I grew, technology has grown too. Technology has grown a lot since from when we were children to now. Like our generation specifically has seen this rapid change in technology. And so being able to incorporate that with what I like about forming logical arguments, philosophically assigning these different values to the universe around us and calling it math, I appreciate that. I like it. I enjoy it. And then being able to like, use that as a foray into still building things, but now just on my computer. So building models, it's a almost a structure in and of itself. Um, building dashboards, building, putting together code to put together different things. Um, so now I am still constructing just in a different format. Oh, that's so awesome. Um, so as a mathematician, um, I'm sure you also identify in society like a lot of math phobia whether it's from kids or from adults who are like, I was so bad at math when I was in school, and that's why I now have a career as, like, a whatever they do now, right? But yeah. how do you think about increasing the idea that everyone can belong in math when so many people are, like, so math-phobic? Do you see a lot of math-phobia? I do see a lot of math phobia. For a little while, I was um, a Title I math educational assistant, and so a couple things that I noticed was knowing what I know about math and building on concepts so that you can actually understand whole bodies of information is that math is taught, like, incredibly weird parts of logic, at, like, after we should have, like, we're focusing on application when we're not understanding why we're doing the application to begin with. Um, and so that's one of the issues. Like, I, I definitely understand why it's hard to grasp it if we don't learn the why before the how. But then we also, we push people to understand things really quickly. And math is a whole lot of logic. And so to like force people, like you need to understand this logic, you need to understand it now to like force people into that position when sometimes you, you do developmentally need to be ready to understand concepts. And so if your brain's just not there yet, then you're not there yet. And so I think one of the things that I wish that we um, did before people that have this wall up 
against math is that we took time to understand that it's okay if we don't get it the first time or the second time or the third time, as long as we keep trying and try and think of how we learn. Um, because again, there's a lot of logic. If we don't understand how we learn, then we're not going to be able to learn the logic within math. And so I also, I taught math at a, as a graduate teaching assistant at the community college in Omaha. And um, we taught a lot of developmental math, which is really just building on concepts that students should have learned in high school before they moved on to college, but they did not. And so one of the things that I really stress in that class is confidence. You need to be confident that you have learned what you know that you've learned. If you've gone through this, you've answered the questions, be confident that you know how to do it because that is the main thing that's going to make you second guess your answer, erase something that's correct, is if you aren't confident that you are doing what you're supposed to be doing. And then fear that we have of failing because it's okay to make mistakes as long as you're asking questions along the way. And if you ask questions, if you make the mistake, you ask the question and then you learn from it. That's a huge part of math as well. So if we weren't so intense about the way that we experience failure and if we weren't so timid about taking the time that we need to to learn things and everything doesn't need to be immediate and I know that we feel that way because of how quickly we receive information um but it's about developing your own processes on on a related note how about people's motivation I I feel like it's students that I've worked with in the past maybe they come in, they say, I can't do this, and then it's sort of an, a, it feels like a lost game at that point. Like, I, I think that the student is very capable, but maybe they're just not interested. As a math graduate student, I take classes where I'm like, I'm not feeling this, I'm not enjoying this, but I have to take it anyway. Um, so it always helps to have a professor who can there are different um, pieces in the concept that are actually interesting and then maybe focusing on those and then doubling back to the things that seemed hard once you find something that's actually fun or interesting um, or seeing if there are just different things that you can relate the information that you're going over to. That way you have something tangible, something that's a little more real and a little more relevant to your life. And then um, once you have that, you can go back and be like, well, see, this is why we need to learn this because this thing is more interesting and this is how it relates to the real world and this is why we need this concept and so being able to relate the material to the student to the learner is a great way to break down those barriers it takes a little extra work but it's worth it so it sounds like for the students that you've taught you've been an excellent not only teacher but also mentor for these students and sort of trying to help reshape how they think about thinking have you identified people in your own life who have served as mentors or how have you worked to create mentors for yourself? Um, first and foremost, my mother has always been inspiring and she has always been someone who will meet you where you are and then start making those connections to lead you to where you want to be. And so she's my mentor, my number one mentor. As far as a mentor closer to my own age, there is someone that I went to a summer camp-like thing at Creighton University in Omaha. It was over the summers. It was called the Health Careers Opportunity Program, where you have different people that come from groups that are unrepresented or underrepresented in STEM, especially health careers, and you go through classes in the summer at Creighton, um, and you learn different things about health careers. And so there was 
a girl who was, I want to say, two years ahead of me um, serving as a mentor. She was already a student at Creighton, and her name is Raven. Um, and she actually, we have the same birthday, but she's a year older. And so she she definitely helps serve as a mentor. She asks me questions about things that I want to do. She has insight on where those possibilities could go. She has experience in like the tech world and computer science. And um, I just, I feel like because I see myself in her as a fellow black woman in STEM and because she has the patience to help me work through some of my different um, walls that I have up about certain things that she serves as a, as a great mentor for me. That's awesome. And I think there's such a value in like close age match peer mentors where they're maybe just a little bit ahead of you on your career. And so when there's someone who's like you or who you can see yourself similar to that person, I've definitely had those experiences with peer, peers who are like less than three years older than me. And they're the ones who have really helped me to get to where I am today. Just the representation aspect of it all. Yeah. Um, do you have any other thoughts on that or experiences that you would like to share that sort of relate to the intersections of your identity as a mathematician, as a woman of color, as a woman? Um, have you like had experiences that help motivate you or turn you away from continuing on this sort of path? So I would say that as a black female math graduate student um, in Nebraska, that I am very often classes that are strictly white male or there's like South Asian, but never black and never female um, in my classes. Like there could be a class of 30 people and I'm like, oh, okay. So I am not a part of the majority in this class. And that does affect the way that your voice is heard sometimes, um, specifically one class that is like glaring in my memory is a class about information theory. And so it's a lot of abstract math. We're going through proofs and arguments together. Um, but the teacher, when we would start doing the arguments, start writing the proofs on the board, every time I would start my argument, because it was different than the way that he formed his arguments, he would say, no, and have me erase it. And then uh, until I like figured out where he wanted to start and then go from there. But when I formed my own arguments on paper, like for tests or homework, they get 100%. So I'm my my argument is correct once you let me fully get it out, but you didn't want to hear it when I was in the classroom because it's not how you form arguments. And I think that um, where you are nationally or culturally, um, or even just in terms of gender and age, you, you definitely have your own way of thinking. You tend to think in common with people that are like you, and then when you are encountered with people that are different, it's important to just listen to their voices. It, it can be disheartening. Like, if I wasn't so sure that I was correct, then that would have definitely messed with my confidence there. But I'm like, I'm a graduate student, and I've formed, I've been forming these math arguments for so long. I'm like, I, I know I'm right, um, but this is really annoying that you have me up here just writing your own words. Like, if you really want it, you can grab the chalk and come up here if this is if this is what you want. Like, I don't have to do this. Um, but as someone who has been at in this university, in this space, um, working with a lot of experiences like that, because like I said, um, I've never been in a math class at UNO with people that looked like me were from where I was from. It's 
almost like operating on an island, but because I had, I've been used to that, I wasn't jarred by it too much. So what would be your advice to someone who finds him or herself in a similar situation, but who doesn't have the same experience being in that situation of being like the only one and doesn't have the experience of being like a final year graduate student who definitely knows her stuff 100%, such as yourself. So like, what are your advice to someone who's experiencing this kind of situation for the first time? It's important to remind yourself that you are here for a reason because you you obviously know what you're doing if you arrived at this place. Um, so be confident even when no one else around you is confident in you. And it's hard. And sometimes it takes going home and ranting about it to someone who understands at least you. They might not understand what you're doing, but if you have at least one or two people who know you, being able to voice that to them and um, – let them remind you that you are smart, you are confident, and you are capable. Um, and if you have no one to go to to say that for you, then write it on a post-it note that's in front of you. Just put it in front of you and read it until you believe it. Um, because, like I said, you are where you are for a reason. Um, you didn't get there because you don't know what you're doing. Other people not, may not understand the way that you do things, but your, your way of going throughout the world is valid. Oh, awesome. That was so affirming. <laughs> I think we should buy some post-it notes. We'll and just write that and yeah. then stick it places for unsuspecting people to find. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Also, um, and this is completely, my mom, her name is Nancy and I call her Nancy. It started because we were working in the same office. Um, and so I couldn't, I couldn't just call her mom. So Nancy, um, <laughs> she's big on gratitude. She, um, she's actually now a CEO and founder of her own nonprofit, and she would not be where she is without being the confident woman that she is. And one thing that she does every night is write in her gratitude journal. So she writes three things that she's thankful for and things that she's working towards. And so I feel that having some place where you keep track of things that you're grateful for also helps you move throughout the day because things may not go your way. People may not hear you the way that you need to be heard. But as long as you continue to be grateful for the things that are going right in your life, and that helps give you strength to write the things that aren't going the way that you need them to be. Yeah, that's awesome. This is such wisdom. It, uh, I'm here for it. <laughs> gives you some good perspective as well. That's Yeah. In addition to your killing it as a student and a teacher, you also like have a full-time job. Yep. Yep. So that's <laughs> casual. We're so here for it. And we're really excited to learn about like what you do in your job at United Way and how you do it all, because it's hard enough to do like classes and research, but also working full time. So we love to know more about what you do at United Way. So at United Way of the Midlands, I would say 80% of my job is working with out of school time sites. I work with about 30, I want to say 34 that are how that are housed within um, one organization called Collective for Youth, and then there are about six more that are just out of school time places in the community. And my primary role with them is to make sure that we are being good stewards of our data. And so that means collecting it properly. That means making sure that um, if there are things going wrong with the site that we are checking with, no need to figure out what's going on. That means that I am writing reports. I am problem solving with different things that are going on with the way that we're warehousing data and communicating from the local school district to our data warehousing experts and figuring out different ways to continuously improve, which is one of 
part of my title. Um, I'm a manager of solutions and continuous improvement. And so I solve problems both with the out-of-school time sites and at United Way as a whole, supporting the data team, um, which is really just like me and two other people. Um, and then... Uh, and you make sure everyone continuously improves. Yes, and I make sure everyone continuously improves. So improving upon processes, making sure that we're being efficient with our time and with our resources, that we're up to date on the pieces of technology that we're actually using as the best of its ability. And so I've started everyone, not everyone, I've started the process of instead of doing things by hand that take more than like three hours, which is just ridiculous. Like I understand cleaning data, but um, after a while, if you're doing a process repeatedly that takes a minimum of three hours, that is a waste of time that's not efficient. And so um, actually just this past week, two weeks ago, I put together a piece of code in R that took in our clean data file and spit out two files that we needed for what we call the CERT process. And so that's where we fund different um, organizations around the community. And so pulling in different scoring of their grant applications and um, putting out files that are useful for the community impact directors that reads it and puts out the files in about two seconds as opposed to the multiple hours that it was taking. It's it's just, it's about 150 lines of code and a lot of those are comments. So I was like, I'm very proud of this and it's more efficient when we need to make changes. It takes at the most 15 minutes as opposed to two and a half hours, three hours. Nice. Ooh, nice. And so to back up a little bit for our listeners who might not know about what United Way is and what their goals are, um, can you speak a little bit more about that? So United Way, the Midlands, a large part of what we do there is what we call community investments. And so it's the community investing in different agencies around Omaha and then Council Bluffs, Carter Lake, like that part of Iowa, the western part of Iowa that's really close to the Omaha area. Um, we use a community um, process where we have volunteers coming in and actually scoring those applications. That way the money is being represented by the people in the community who are coming in to help score the applications. And then they're a part of the funding process of figuring out how much money is going where. We still have our community impact directors. And so there are subject matter experts on the different realms of things that we um, give money to. So we have basic needs. So like shelter and um, crisis intervention. And we have education. So mentoring, pre-literacy, out-of-school time, um, basic needs that are in that regard, too. So, like, food and shelter um, for the students in that out-of-school time programming. And then we also have financial stability, so helping with workforce development and making sure that everyone who is interested in participating in those specific types of programs know how to stay on top of taxes and then to help prepare them to earn a living wage. So are you involved in any of these projects hands-on, or are you mostly sort of standing back and taking the data on how all these projects are going and making sure that you're moving and working efficiently? So I primarily work with the data, the integrity of the data, make sure that we are understanding what the data means because it comes in many different forms. And so we need to be clear on what we're actually saying when we are looking at the data in different ways. And I actually, I train the sites on how to use their data and any other questions that they have about 
what the data actually means, why is the data important, helping them use that data to inform what they're doing at their site. So we also collect a youth outcome survey. So it's how do the students feel, where do they feel most confident, where are places where they need more support, um, and then helping helping the staff understand what that survey actually means. They also are fairly high on it, so we have a good quality programs across the community for the most part. Because to give a little bit more background, I started going to the Boys and Girls Club when I was about seven years old. I started volunteering there when I was 13, and I had my first paid job there when I was 18. And then I started working in this fun initiative called Imagine Science, which dealt with getting um, underrepresented and unrepresented students in low-income areas that access to quality STEM programming. Um, and then I did that for a few years, and then that's when I started grad school. But because I had been in that field, in that area for so long, I do have a lot of expertise in how the programming should run for it to be effective, what that positive youth development looks like, what the professional development should look like for the people that are in that field, and then the different outcomes that we should be looking for for the youth in these programs. And so I feel like my voice is heard in the in the realm of the education aspect of the funding, hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. Um, so one of the reasons why we are super excited to have you here as a guest on this You Do Belong in Science series is that um, we know you have experience with these sort of after-school time, both like professional development and educational enrichment. And you have experience, like you mentioned, as a participant, as a local volunteer, and as a total organizer, badass that you are today. Um, so when it comes to these outreach experiences, like whether it's with Boys and Girls Club or some of your other outreach, which I know is extremely extensive, what advice do you have for someone who's looking to form long-term relationships with these kinds of organizations? Um, and then when it comes to like STEM outreach specifically, um, what works and what doesn't? In, P in our graduate program, there's a lot of initiatives to get PhD students and even professors to go to the classroom or to some sort of after-school program for like one day to do a cool lesson about like bacteria in your mouth. And those are really fun for the scientists and students to participate in. But like, what is the most impactful way that you think scientists and others can do STEM outreach for communities? That is, it's a huge question. And if I said, well, the, the, the way that we need to do STEM outreach is this, this, and this. So that's a, it's a, it's a wide reaching subject. Um, but for me, I would say one of the most important things about STEM, STEM outreach or anything really with working with people, but especially kids is relationships. So STEM is just the activity that's happening. But if we don't have the bond, the positive youth development, if you aren't building that healthy um, adult relationship with the youth, showing them that someone cares and that someone will consistently be there to support them, then the actual, the activity does not matter as much. It's always the relationship. And so that goes back to what I was saying about how, um, how I helped people understand where they needed to be in math developmental mathematics. It's about building that relationship of trust that's incredibly important for any kind of outreach with youth. Sim is just Sim is the is the vehicle. Sim is just the the activity that's happening there. But the real important part is that relationship, which is why um, when I talk about doing the out of school time STEM stuff, I really like to emphasize that the positive youth development is the main aspect of it. Because if you go if you go through any sort of training to do STEM with youth, you will find 
that the you will spend the most time on the the youth development aspect of it. So how are you letting the, how are you making sure that they are hearing their own voice in it? So how are you making sure that they're getting to make their own decisions? How are they involved throughout the process? Are you making sure that they are asking questions? Are they involved? Do they feel like their voice is heard? All these things we know goes back to where our interests lie. Because if we feel like we're doing an activity, but we're not heard and no one cares that we're participating, it's just, it doesn't feel fun. It doesn't feel like we should continue in that area because it doesn't feel like we are wanted there. And so making sure that we are building that foundation of a positive youth development, that's where that successful STEM outreach is going to come. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's perfectly put. I love it. <laughs> yeah, so here you are powering through, like, uh, you have these some great mentors around, um, doing some awesome work. So uh, we'd love to hear more about some of the ways that you are mentoring others and the different kinds of outreach experiences that you have. And I have a couple in particular I'm really excited to ask about, but I'll let you start, and then I'll jump in. <laughs> So to lead into me being involved in um, Imagine Science, I will start with saying that I was a technology program specialist at the Westside Boys and Girls Club in Omaha. Um, so that involved a lot of using a technology programming that already existed. So like Lego Robotics, um, we had our, our digital arts festival, um, different ways to make sure that the students are engaged, but using technology. And so I would put together curriculum and lesson plans and have it approved by my supervisor and do that with youth. I had my own classroom there for about a year. And then um, actually Nancy, again, she was, she, she was the chief information officer for the Boys and Girls Club. And she had applied for this, um, for Omaha to be a part of this national initiative called Imagine Science. It is a partnership between um, the Boys and Girls Club, Girls Inc., YMCA, and 4-H. The pilots are in Omaha, Dallas, Texas, and Orange County. Um, and so in those three locations, that's where we would focus on bringing quality STEM programming to out-of-school time to youth um, in underrepresented and unrepresented communities um, where we were in each of our locations. And so in Omaha, we were... At the Boys and Girls Club, they were looking for people who preferably were already on staff, but had that foundation of working with youth, but also had the expertise in technology. And like I said, I'd been with the Boys and Girls Club for years as a member, volunteer, and then paid professional. And then I also, I had the STEM background because civil engineering to math, and I had just graduated. And so I was one of the project leads from Omaha, and there was another who had just finished a first, her first year of grad school at College of St. Mary. And so we led the Omaha Boys and Girls Club, and then we had leads at Girls Inc., YMCA, and 4-H. And it was up to us to figure out what that was going to look like. And if you've ever been a part of a pilot, there are a lot of goals and expectations that aren't necessarily we don't know if they're necessarily feasible yet because we haven't experienced it yet. So we had to set, we didn't get to set the goals. We had to see if we could meet the goals, um, if we could figure out what programming was engaging enough for the youth and then see what we could do in terms of outreach to reach all, all the youth. <laughs> right. You're setting a lot of precedents and trying to figure out what is the best way to even answer the question. <laughs> There's still a ton of outreach that you haven't spoken about. Um, 
Is there any other like <laughs> outreach experiences that you either want to add, talk about? Uh, there is one really cool uh, little uh, outreach thing that I did. It was um, the, my second entrance back into Duchenne. So this is our high school for listeners. This is this is our all girls Catholic high school that Noni and me met at. Yes. Um, beautiful building, lots of beautiful people, uh, beautiful in terms of soul, but also, you know, when really people are nice. So, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and so I was speaking to Dr. Hickman, the principal over at Chin Academy, and she was telling me that one of my former, uh, I don't think I had her for math, but I had her for business, Mrs. Ford, wanted to start a computer science course, and they wanted to test it out as a zero-hour class, so before school started, um, and she needed some direction on where to go, and so I helped her find the, decide on the curriculum that we were going to use, and then I helped um, facilitate the class, and so on some occasion, I would even have to lead it on my own, which again, it, you all know, it's in my wheelhouse to lead some STEM programming. Um, so I helped lead that throughout the first year. And then because of the success in that, it moved into regular school day programming as an AP computer science course. And now we have even more girls taking the AP science test. Oh, yes. I'm so here for this. That's so awesome. I did see the, um, the Duchenne teaching assistant computer science position on your resume, but I noticed it was under volunteer experiences. So were you not paid for all of that work and expertise? So as a, as a paid position, that's a, like, I definitely have to be awake in time to get to class and like be there every, every time for every, for every piece of it. And I was interested in helping her get the resources that I used um, in my nonprofit setting. And so I did that. I led some of the classes, but after a certain point, I backed off and it was just hers on her own. And because I have so many things going on, I'm going to step back from this a little bit. Absolutely. And I, <laughs> I hope you don't mind like me asking a direct question about money, but I think um, it's really important because obviously the skills and the, the experience that you have as a professional in STEM and also a professional in youth development and STEM outreach, like they're both equally valuable skills. And so like, I think it's hard for a lot of people, like, especially at our age, where you are developing expertise in something that's outside of your primary area of study, like podcasting or, like, STEM outreach, for example. It's like, how do you know when to say, like, that's great and I'd love to help, but you need to pay me? Yeah. And hilarious. how do you know when you can do it for free? Exactly. Friends who are, like, really into financial planning, like, at what point do they say to their friends, like, you need to pay me to help you plan your money life, you know? Anyway, yeah. so that's yeah. something that I'm interested in. It's important to set those boundaries, especially because, like you said, as women, um, people get used to taking advantage of your time. And so it's, you need to be aware that you are, that, yeah, like you said, your expertise is worth something. You also coach the slam poetry team. <laughs> That's so cool. It's, it's a lot of fun. Um, I actually had a three-hour practice today with my girls over at um, here's another plug for Nancy because she has a nonprofit called No More Empty Cups. It deals with sustainability and getting local food to people in the community, especially those who live in food deserts, um, because it's it's especially hard to get fresh food that is good for you um, in a lot of places in Omaha, and it's a shame, and it should not be happening. There are a lot of vulnerable um, populations, and so her her organization is working to combat 
poverty and then also uh, that sustainability and local getting local food to people in the community. Uh, but anyway, she has a nonprofit coffee shop to go along with her nonprofit called No More Empty Cups, and they have a community room because it's supposed to be about bringing together diverse audience, um, a come-as-you-are type place. And so they have a room that you can check out for different community things, and I checked that out for my Slam Poetry Club meeting today. Oh wow. Um, first of all, we will definitely That's link awesome. to No More Empty Cups um, on our show notes, and if you yeah. live in Omaha, you should go to there and give them all your money. <laughs> Yes, their coffee is so good. They're so nice. They give student discounts. That's awesome. That's a benefit of being in grad school. It's like, I'm 25. Can I have 15% off as a student student. discount? Yes. Would you like to see my ID? I promise I'm still in school. Um, And I also have my ID from teaching at Metro. Can I use that for double discounts, please? Right, like the places (laughs) that give discounts to teachers at, like, the the arts and crafts stores. Oh, yes. All right. So, Noni, um... We've talked about your classes. I guess we haven't talked about your research. So tell us about your research and also, like, how you do it all. You have a full-time job. Um, you're a full-time student. Anything, you're a full-time coach. Yeah. And anything you particularly want your peers or professors to know about what it's like for you doing working and being a student and doing all this other things at the same time. It means that I need to be very disciplined, um, and I need to make sure that people are respecting my time. Like, if anything, that being in uh, in grad school full-time and working full-time and volunteering slash getting paid for being a teaching artist. I get paid for being a teacher artist, artist and then I volunteer um, for some other things on the side. Like, I just volunteered as a judge for a local Lego box competition. Um, one thing that I need, that I um, have been very diligent about just because, like, I, I have I have to be, is that I have set times when I can and can't do things, and either you will respect that or you just won't see me, um, because I, I do have places that I need to be and things that I need to do, um, and I like to do things to the best of my ability, so I am, I'm thorough, um, and I don't like to be micromanaged, because I do so much managing of my own self. Um, and because I have totally to be so agree. <laughs> like your time isn't available for them at any given moment. It is not. Um, and I also, uh, want professors to know that if you have a class like multiple times a week, don't assign something on a Tuesday and expect it to be done by Thursday because that was not part of my master plan for the week. Um, you can assign <laughs> it on Thursday, expect it for the next Tuesday, but because my life is set out where I need to go to work and then I need to go to class and then I'm either working on something or I like actually want to eat and then sleep, then that is what I'm doing. <laughs> and then I, and very diligent about when I do things. Giving at least a week of notice on upcoming assignments would be really yes. helpful. Makes yes. sense. Oh, so Noni, obviously you're slaying in every arena that you touch, but what are your ultimate career and life goals? My ultimate goal, and this is very cheesy, is to be happy and confident in what I'm doing. Um, I like to solve problems. I like to solve puzzles. I like to innovate. Um, And I'm happy doing that in a lot of different regards. So I don't know if I have a specific 
job that I have in mind, because like some days I'm like, oh, I want to be strictly a data scientist, or I want to be a data consultant and then work on like the information delivery aspect of it, like helping people understand these concepts or helping business people in the specific business sector understand what they want and then conveying that um, to people working on the data and then being able to present that project or maybe using deterministic operations to optimize the way that people do things because there are optimal and suboptimal ways to do things and I think it's it's important that people know that and um, are aware of the different ways to find out what's what's the best use of time and what isn't um, or even just like having a ranch where it's sustainable and I have a greenhouse and I have like two horses and some dogs and I code things for people there. I don't know. I, I just would I just, visit uh, that so hard. <laughs> It'd be pretty awesome. I think in my mind it'd either be in rural Colorado or Louisiana. Those are the two places that I'm thinking of right now. But my my career goal is to be able to solve problems, to not be stagnant in my growth or the the challenges that I face, and to feel. Um, well, I can't control how other people perceive me to feel confident and to know that what I'm doing is worthwhile and relevant. Oh, I love it so much. That's awesome. Is there anything else that you don't want to leave without saying? I honestly, I don't know. Um, if you're listening to this, wish me luck on my midterms and my master's project. Uh, Send a little Hail Mary up for me if you are Catholic. Send some good energy towards me if you believe in energy. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, is your, what is your master's project? So my master's project is taking United Way data, specifically the community investment demographic data, and um, putting together a dashboard and then also putting together some models that are about the the way that the different pieces of the data is correlated so that we can automate some reporting and put together some sort of centralized way that we are looking at the data. I love oh. it. It all this is like the perfect little bow yeah. to put on everything that we've talked about for this episode. Yep. <laughs> Agreed. Oh Noni, this has been so awesome. I've had a lot of fun. Um Kayla is it time for shameless plug time? It's shameless plug time. Anything that you want to plug shamelessly, this is your chance. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so I was thinking about this. I want to shamelessly plug my mama, Nancy Williams. No more empty pots in Omaha, Nebraska. They're doing great work. They're putting together a, um, a hub in Omaha that will serve as a place where people can meet to learn more about how they can have success working in the in the food realm so different if you want to work be a restaurant tour work as a chef um they have that workforce development that's happening there um they also do great work with local community gardens and working with schools and helping them get their own community gardens started at those schools they do great outreach in that regard and also they have a coffee shop that is located on, I want to say, 10th and William, 10th and Mary, something like that. It's near the Durham Museum, if you live in Omaha, Nebraska. Great coffee, great people, um, discounts for students. 
And I don't have anything else that I'm working on unless, like, I could, like, outsource my master's project, but then I'm not learning anything, so... Uh, yeah, in our line of research, outsourcing your thesis work is called getting an undergrad. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> I have I have some ideas in mind, though, so keep your your eyes and ears peeled for Noni Williams working on working on projects. I'm trying to do some things. Are you on like the Twitter? <laughs> I am severely inactive on most of my social medias, but if you want to see some um, fun photography every once in a while, I'm on Instagram at Noni Has Knees. I love it. There we go. Um, and when you have a next project, let us know and we'll put it on our social media, Podcast at gmail.com awesome. is our email and our Twitter is at Pod. And Noni, this has been so lovely. Really great to talk with you. And listeners, Noni, we hope that you loved her insights as much as we did. Um, we're basically obsessed. And you do belong <laughs> in science. You do belong in science. Or STEM, math. STEM. STEM. It's... It's... What is... It yeah. just kind of all blends together after yeah. circle. They all belong in each other. So, yes. Science, STEM, this universe, this realm of supportive women. <laughs> oh, I'm here for it. Awesome. Good luck with midterms. You're going to crush it. Is, is it Thanks. your last midterms season? Yes, this is my final round of midterms, and I'm excited to be done with it. I only have one left. It is in data communications. Um, it's an elective completely out of my department, but I'm having fun, so we'll see how it goes. Well, good luck. We believe in you. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, all right, it's awesome to talk with you. Great to talk to you guys, too. guest today, John Muncy, and he is an excellent graduate student in our program here at UC Berkeley UCSF, and we're going to be talking about allyship. And we'll also be talking about direct actions that everyone can take um, to help make our communities where the most people can feel the most amount of belonging. One of the reasons why we're excited to have John on as our allyship correspondent has to do with emotional labor. So in the field of making STEM or other communities more welcoming to people from all different backgrounds, it often falls on the people who are in the minority to do the work to educate the rest of the community, like, hey, like, just so you know, like, one issue that's important to women in STEM is, you know, blah, 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 like, make sure that you're doing blah, 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 blah. Like, and that takes, like, you're not just saying blah, 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 like, you're putting in your deep thought and your deep effort into researching these things, into coming up with cogent things to say, about why it's important that the whole community is more welcoming to people from underrepresented groups. So we're inviting John on because John has done so much of the emotional labor for us and he's dug into the literature. He's come up with some action points that everyone can do to help become an ally to women, underrepresented students, and people who don't feel belonging in their own STEM communities. So with that, John, thank you so much for being here today. Hi, yeah, thanks for having me. I'm super pumped uh, to have this conversation with you guys. I've been a fan of the podcast for a while now, so it's it's really pretty awesome to get to sit down and be a part of it. Uh, we're happy to have you as our allyship correspondent. It's going to be great. Um, so basically in the You Do Belong in Science series, we'll pop John's little allyship segments into some of the episodes so we can hear not only from our expert guests, but also from John about some different skills that we can be building to promote allyship within STEM. So thanks, John, for doing the emotional labor to bring us these segments. Um, what's our first topic? I think emotional labor is a great place to start. 
it's a little bit of a nebulous topic, I think, especially maybe for people who don't think about these issues all the time. And even for myself, I think this was a phrase that I sort of saw start to pop up just in the past few months in a lot of different places. Um, and so, yeah, I thought maybe this would be a great place for us to start. Excellent. So, John, what is emotional labor? One way to think about it is that emotional labor sort of constitutes all the work and effort and emotion that uh, gets spent that isn't necessarily in someone's job description. You know, men and women both deal with emotional labor, but I think one of the reasons we're talking about this today is that in the workplace, we tend to we tend to expect women to carry the bulk of the load when it comes to emotional labor in the workplace. And so some places that this specifically plays out is in women being the ones expected to manage conflict in the workplace, women being expected to organize the social events. And maybe that's just something as simple as like bringing in treats for someone's birthday, as well as like just general organizational administrative duties that, again, are not part of someone's job description, but are just generally heaved onto women specifically for the for the purpose of this conversation, because they are perceived as being better at these tasks, when in fact, that's an assumption that may or may not hold true. Awesome. And I think when you say that emotional labor is stuff that you do that's outside of your job description, I would just add to that. I do all kinds of stuff that's outside of my job description, right? If I didn't, I would never get a better job and I would never succeed in my career. But I think emotional labor refers specifically to things that are not only outside of your job description, but that also are not helping your career in any way. Yeah. You're the one. This happens not only in jobs, but also in student clubs. So I was recently had the opportunity to to participate in a dialogue with some undergraduate women in engineering, and they were talking about how they do belong to a lot of engineering or STEM or professional development type of clubs. But within those clubs, they noticed that women are often assigned or even self-assigned the roles like internal club communication person or organizing the events that are just for the club, whereas male students might be assigned or self-assigned to roles like outreach with a funder or networking with other clubs or doing the actual engineering task around which the club revolves. So making sure that even within your fun time, that these organizational tasks are equally divided. Yeah, and it's it's not just things that have no benefit maybe to your work, but you're you're losing a lot of valuable time. So time that you could be doing much more valuable career prep. So a good example, I don't know if we've talked about is being the safety officer. (laughs) Uh, Being the safety officer does benefit you in that you really delve into the nitty gritty of how to manage all of these different aspects of safety. But there is marginal returns on that benefit the longer that you are the safety officer and that quickly becomes more of a chore and not beneficial for your development. Whereas if that could be passed around or shared more equally, then the job still gets done. It's really important. Everyone gets experience with it, but you're not losing your research time while you're trying to get everyone to clean up the lab. Yeah, and I think safety officer is a very interesting one because I have, yes, been the safety officer. (laughs) They were like, oh, you should be the safety officer. I think it's a good fit for your personality, which means that like I'm outgoing and friendly I have enough social capital to spare that I can expend some of it telling people to, like, deal with their trash, right? (laughs) But 
should I be penalized for that? I don't know. But my eye-opening experience as a safety officer was when I went to a meeting for all the safety officers in the building. And of the, like, 13 safety officers that were there, there was eight women. Outside of my own individual research group, I didn't even know eight women worked in my building. So it was, like, every lab sending their one token woman to be the safety officer. I think on this year, at this meeting, that's what was happening. So... Anyway, let's move beyond safety officers. So, John, I think Kayla and I have kind of alluded to it. Can you help articulate why this is such a big deal? I'll go back for a second. I I think you made a good point that this isn't just a workplace issue. So I have experience with this popping up, again, in this sort of, like, fun aspect of life. So one of my hobbies is running. I really like running. And so I I read a lot about the elite running world, even though I'm by no means an elite runner. um, It just, like, really interests me. One of the coaches I follow wrote a piece recently about emotional labor in the world of coaching and talking about how just in her own personal experiences observing men and women coaches, women coaches tend to pick up a lot of this, again, emotional labor in terms of managing the emotions of their athletes before and after races, as well as during their training. Whereas coaches who are men tended to focus strictly on what is the workout? What is the goal pace? much more regimented and focused on like the work itself. The important point here is that it's not that emotional labor is bad because looking at these athletes and their performances, a huge part of, especially at the elite level where most of these athletes are all very, very fit and very well trained. The ultimate result is going to come down to how you're able to manage your emotions and how your coach may or may not help you do that. And so I, I think that just kind of illuminates like the point here isn't necessarily that emotional labor is bad and we need to be making sure we aren't making people do it, but that we all sort of like carry this load equally and are able to identify where are places where we can shoulder some more of this emotional labor burden for the betterment of our lab or our community or whoever it is. Yeah. And I think, John, you brought some data or evidence talking about how a similar thing with the like emotional support of trainees is also found in academia. Yes. So one specific study that was done highlighted by CNN was that Rebecca Erickson, a professor of sociology at the University of Akron, was basically studying female and male faculty and how she observed big differences in what happened in their office hours. And specifically that uh, office hours held by female faculty tended to basically turn into these confessionals where students felt comfortable enough to sort of share some pretty gut-wrenching stories with these female faculty, and really they were just looking for support. These female faculty often had to turn these students over to or point them in the direction of campus support services. And I think, again, the point here is that, you know, male faculty also have access to these resources and the ability to help these students find these resources. But the sort of societal norm and the expectation we place is that when we're looking for, for comfort or not even comfort, but like There's just sort of an expectation that a woman is going to help me solve my emotional problems. And I think that's just for a number of reasons, really an unhealthy attitude to have. Yeah. And it's like you said, it's not it's not a bad thing because these students needed the resources and they they eventually got to the resources. It's just that this distribution, I mean, it's also taking time away then from what those faculty now they're not writing grants or they're not doing all of their other responsibilities as well. (laughs) Yeah. And I think, again, the point here is not that like these students made an error by choosing to share with the female faculty. The point is that it just sort of illuminates this general underlying assumption we all make and that we 
again, as a society, as a group, need to take efforts to sort of try to equalize. Absolutely. Should we move into actions? Sure. Okay. Yeah, I think it would be great to just go through, like, like we're talking about, this is sort of a big issue that manifests itself in a lot of different ways. So, right. and especially if this is the first time even maybe hearing the phrase emotional labor or discussing it, you might be feeling overwhelmed about like, okay, what, what can I even do about this if this is such a huge sort of issue? Specifically, if you're in grad school, if you're in a lab, the next time your lab is playing a social event or a celebration, let's say someone passed quals or someone just published, go ahead and volunteer your time to take the lead on planning. Don't let, um, don't let this just fall on maybe the person in your lab who normally takes on this responsibility every single time. Another thing you can do, tying back to our discussion of the safety officer, is again, take some initiative uh, on your own to spend, even if it's just 30 minutes or an hour, looking into your lab's last safety report and checking in on whether everyone has the appropriate personal protective equipment and maybe picking one or two things that your lab isn't quite up to speed on and helping push forward and improving your lab's safety in a couple of ways. And not just safety, but maintenance of facilities and equipment. And- right. Like, is there someone who always takes the 10 millimeter pipettes from their main stock in the supply closet and then brings it not only to refill in your lab, but also like right next to the tissue culture hood? Yes. Someone, someone does that every time. That is a great example. <laughs> <laughs> to me, it's always the most eye-opening when someone leaves the lab and you're like, wait, <laughs> no one's refilled the, like, whatever it is in six months. It's like, I think so-and-so used to do that, and we didn't even know that they were doing this all the time. So, yeah. yeah, like, think about the person who does the most in your lab, and what if they left tomorrow or, like, got sick for two months and couldn't come in? Do you know how to do all the things that they do that you don't even know about? Yeah. And, like, why are they – like, if it's perfect – if it's assigned in your lab and everyone does their own thing, fine. But there's some things that are done every week or every month that aren't assigned, and they're just de facto assigned. And, like, are they all de facto assigned to the same person? Open your eyes. Yeah, for sure. Um, another simple one is just, like, have a conversation with someone about emotional labor. Like, hey, I just listened to this podcast, and they were talking about emotional labor, and I have never heard about this before. Have you heard about this or – with a lot of these issues that I think we're going to talk about, a big part of it is just spending more time talking about it and listening to other people and understanding how this is playing a role in people's lives. Another one is to just sort of work to build an environment where get more comfortable being emotionally uncomfortable. So whether that's like checking in on a coworker who seems to be down or maybe, you know, asking someone else to check in on that coworker. If you're the one who's, who always seems to be taking on these tasks I think just the more we sort of can all individually get invested in the emotional well-being of the people we're surrounded with to, to an appropriate level. Yes. <laughs> which I think is maybe another important point to make here. This isn't saying we need to all go around and like pry into the emotional depths of all of our coworkers, but um, please don't. <laughs> please yeah. Don't. <laughs> but there is there is a, a professional place to maintaining the group dynamics and keeping a functional work environment. And sometimes that requires making sure that people do have the access to the right resources and that they feel included and yes. noticed. <laughs> yeah, I think I think the way you just put that, Kayla, is a great way to think about it. Making sure we're all doing our part to maintain the group dynamic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I, just one more that's like a fun one. Like next time it's someone's birthday, bake them a cake or cookies or something. And even if like, 
you're not good at that or that's not typically your thing, I promise it'll become a super fun thing for your lab. I've seen this happen in my lab. And now it sort of just becomes this fun thing where, you know, we're joking around with, you know, so-and-so's baking has gotten so much better. Or, <laughs> you know, it's just sort of a, a fun way to, like, take these tasks that maybe we just sort of expect someone else to do. And when you take some initiative and, and do them yourself, it can become a lot of fun for everyone. Oh, I love and it. What a great way to uh, to take a break from your science. <laughs> or from your restocking of materials that yeah. no one else restocked because that's your self-assigned emotional labor burden. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> oh, really great practical tips. And I I think that's the key here is having... It's definitely hard, like you said, to take this really big, pervasive issue and try to figure out what to actually do about it on a daily basis. <laughs> so these are really great ideas. John, allyship correspondent, thanks for joining us once again. Um, we'll hear more from John on a later episode. Listeners, if you have any like action items you want to add to our list of what people can do to create an egalitarian environment of emotional labor in the workplace or the fun place, shoot us an email, find us on Twitter at DoubleShelixPod, or you can call our voicemail number, which is 415-895-0850 and leave us a message because we'd love to hear from you listeners. Okay, cool. Thanks, John. Yeah, thanks for having me. We hope you enjoyed that episode. I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, it was amazing. Uh, so now comes the time where we want to thank everyone who's been involved in the production of this series and tell you more about how you can be involved with Double Shelix. We really appreciate the support you guys have gotten. Um, this podcast, we definitely appreciate the support of our funders, the Berkeley Student Technology Fund and the University of Pennsylvania Department of Bioengineering. But mostly this podcast is just us working in our limited free time. So we really appreciate all the love that our listeners can share with us. You can, we, we want to bring you guys' listeners' voices into this podcast. And the best way to do that, send us your stories. So you can, you can call our voicemail at 415-895-0850. And there's links on the website and in our show notes. So you can find it there. But you can send out your story about the time that you felt belonging or disbelonging in science or any other comments that you want to share with us. Uh, we would love to hear your stories, and um, we just might share some of your stories, either anonymously or not, on the podcast in the future. Yeah, and it's through the listeners that we're going to be able to get this diverse voices. So we really are excited to share your guys' experience at the intersection of belonging, science, identity. So if you guys have any, I mean, I know you guys have experiences, like feeling <laughs> like you don't belong in science. So please tell them. It can be anonymous. We welcome them. And we also have a Google form on the website. Yeah. That you can submit. Yeah, if you don't want to well. call us, just like write it in our Google form. It can be 100% anonymous, or you can say like, "I'm a PhD student," and like that's all you can say, and that's totally fine. Submit your stories. Also, share the love. Like, please rate and review and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. Like, that's an effective way that can help people find it. You can shout out to us on social media, on Twitter at Double Shelix Pod. Speaking of shout outs. Thank you, major thank you to Gustavo Villarreal, who designed our logo and our new sticker. And thank you to Kaz Lewis, who took our portraits that you can find on the website. Like, we look pretty profesh, if I have to say. <laughs> um, Gustavo, you can find him on Twitter at WikiRascals, and you can find Kaz Lewis on Instagram at Kaz Lewis. His photography, you guys, it's amazing. If you liked this episode, 
all about like mentorship and how you can engage as a mentor and help students through mentorship, we recommend our most loved episode, which is with Julia Volsaki's mentorship expert. It's back in our feed, a few episodes called next level mentorship for mentees and mentors with Julia Volsaki's. This episode will change your life. It's so good. Like 12 people have told me that this episode is what made them choose the right thesis lab or like showed them that they chose the wrong thesis lab. It's Julia's so practical amazing. and she has so much great information to share. So definitely yeah. check it out. But. Yeah. So stickers, stickers. Um, stickers are happening. Stickers are here. We have two stickers, one that says double Helix with our logo from Gustavo. It's amazing. You definitely want a sticker of this. The other one is a sticker that says you do belong in science also designed by Gustavo. So it says you do belong in science and it looks like a post-it note with like a little bit curled up in the corner. So you can like give it to your mentee and then your mentee will be like a post-it note. And it's like, you're sending them this personal message and they'll feel touched. Like if I was a mentee and someone that I respected told me that I did belong in science by giving me a sticker that says you do belong in science, I would melt inside. So help your mentees. You're like, how can I get these stickers? There's a form on our website. Go to doublechelix.com slash stickers. Yes. We will we have grant funding and we will mail you stickers for yourself and or your mentees for free. Um thank you funders. Thank you birthday <laughs> student tech fund. Um if you have might have seen our flyer that Kayla designed, it's basically the best flyer I've ever seen. Um let's say you want to put this flyer up in your institution so that other people can see it like in the elevator hypothetically and be like, "Oh my god, this is an amazing flyer. I should listen to this podcast series." doublehelix.com/flyer, just print it out. Or fill out our stickers form and we can also, there's like a place you can indicate that you want flyers and we will mail you paper flyers if you promise to hang them up. So yeah, if you didn't know, we want to get the word out about this podcast. And we also really love if you send us photos of stickers out in the wild. So wherever you posted them, just take a picture of where you posted it so we can add it yeah. to our website. Post a sticker in the real world, take a picture of it, post the picture online, tag us <laughs> at Double Helix Pod, hashtag YDBIS, hashtag you do belong in science. It's the best way to make our day. Like, yeah, seriously. Actually. Oh, but you know what the number one way to make my day is? Tell us, Sally. Um, rate and review this podcast on oh, iTunes. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. I didn't see that coming. If we get, so like several episodes ago, we said that when we get 20 podcast reviews on iTunes, we will bring snacks for our lab. People, we are at 17. My lab mates have not forgotten that. Have they reviewed it? There's more than 20 people in your lab. <laughs> There's not 20 reviews. Anyway, <laughs> just please review us. Like yeah. it helps. Thank you for listening to this episode. Yes. We hope you loved Noni as much as we did. We hope you appreciated John's insights and can like bring this allyship into your own life. Um, and oh yeah, sharing the stories from the listeners. Um, that's coming. Listeners, on the next episode, we want to share your stories. So keep them coming. Um, it's going to be amazing. Some of the listener stories are, like, so touching. But yours doesn't have to be touching. Like, just write your truth, and we will honor it. Bullet points accepted. Yeah, bullet points accepted. And don't forget, you do belong in science. You do belong in science. Mm-hmm.